And the only scene I remembered was the potato chip scene where that, you know, where they talk about videos that live in your head rent free. That has lived in my head since 1975, apparently. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. fans of Shuklastan and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Alison Brown. Alison, hello. How are you today? I am feeling very fast. I've been watching speed skating. Oh, I feel like I could just slap on a pair of clap skates and go out and act Dutch and just skate really fast. (laughs) But I want, like, the hard cut to the reality of you slapping on a pair of clap skates. Well, you know, to be fair, I have been skating nearly my entire life. I did put on my first pair of skates when I was three years old. They were figure skates. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I would fall down on clap skates. Could I go very fast? No. 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 Because I try- remember a few years ago I tried it. I don't think I had clap yes. I had the I But I had the speed skating skate blades, and they scared the living daylights out of me because they were yeah, no so razor pick. thin yeah no toe pick and razor thin and much thinner than a figure skating skate blade and yeah. i when i was a kid i did figure skating so that is a little more natural but those blades whoa someday the two of us will get on i want to try clap skate so bad because it's a low boot as well and mm-hmm. the boot is much more flexible than a figure skating boot i think it would be so much fun of course the blade is longer than i am tall <laughs> So that might be a bit of an issue, but I'm ready. I'm ready to zip on my speed suit, get my little hood up, put my little freaky glasses on. There you go. Ready to go. Have Dutch people yell at me and ring the bell. I am ready. All right. We'll get you on the ice. I'm so ready. Before we get into today's show, we wanted to let you know that we got to go to a virtual podcasting seminar last week. We have tons of ideas for the show to make it better. And one of those is leaning into our fictional country of Shukflistan. So you will see that emerge on our social platforms, on our Patreon, and uh, everywhere we're at over the next few weeks. But the first big change that you'll see is in our weekly newsletter, which we've renamed the Shukflistan Compass. And the Shuklistan Ministry of Communications has asked us to tell you that it highly recommends that you subscribe to the newsletter and get it in your inbox every week. And you can do so at our website, flamealivepod.com. The sign up is at the bottom of the homepage. Very excited. I know. We need a song. We need an anthem. We do. I discussed on Instagram this week that we might need a national dance. I would love that. Might have posted some pictures of Jill doing some folk dancing. I saw that. <laughs> you look Makes lovely. Me... Thank you. I loved wearing those clothes. I loved having different boots and the, the, the national costumes. It was a lot of fun. Have been working on the Shukflistan headpiece. Excellent. That'll be unveiled probably in a, like, I think I'll be able to finish it like in a week. Oh, to excellent. To where I want it. Oh, yeah. will you wear it for the show? I will wear it for the show and I will post pictures. Excellent. I am so excited about that. 
I think you'll be impressed. I'm sure I will. (laughs) It's movie club week, so that means film buff Fran is back to talk about our latest selection, The Other Side of the Mountain, about uh, skier Jill Kinmont. Take a listen. Fran, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Well, it's good to hear you again. And we're talking about The Other Side of the Mountain this week, the story of uh, skier Jill Kinmont. Take it away. Yes. Well, so we have The Other Side of the Mountain, which is a 1975 film that was set in the 50s. It took me a couple of minutes to figure out like where exactly the movie was set. I did not read anything about it beforehand. I kind of wanted to just be immersed in it and not know where the story was or what time frame it was. And then I finally kind of got the feel for it. So it's a movie set in the in the 50s, actually. Jill was born in the late 30s. Um, so she's a teenager when the movie starts. And it's really a movie about just hope, determination, grit, all those things that you see in a typical true Olympian. So it, it, it was a really... I thought it was a really neat movie to watch. I think it was a product of its generation of the of the seventies, but it it was well done. I thought the I thought the people, the actors, were well cast, and I really think she, uh, especially the 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 actor who played Jill, uh, her name is Marilyn Hassert. She did a wonderful job, really showing the the trials and tribulations of what this woman went through. I'm so glad you said that, Fran, because this was my suggestion, and I was going to come and apologize for making everybody watch this movie. Because <laughs> I I haven't seen it probably since it was in the theaters when I was a little kid, and the only scene I remembered was the potato chip scene, where that you know where they talk about videos that live in your head rent free. That has lived in my head since 1975, apparently, and. I was like, oh, yeah, let's go back and rewatch it. And, oh, oh, this was not a good movie. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. I liked it. You know, it was simple. It was basic. And and I do remember watching this movie as a kid because I do remember the potato chip scene. I'm like, I saw this movie before. I know this guy is going to flip out and leave her. <laughs> Explain the potato chip scene. So (laughs) Jill Kinmont uh, is racing uh, actually for a spot on the Olympic team. She suffers a serious spinal injury and is left paralyzed from the shoulders down. She has gone through months and months and months of therapy. And she still has only the most basic movements. And her boyfriend, Buddy Warner, who is also a ski racer, is now coming to visit her at the hospital. After apparently not seeing her this whole time since the accident, that that was the impression they give you. Right. She says, oh, I've got something to show you. And she has a bowl of potato chips in her lap and she is able to lift a single potato chip out of the bowl. With a lot of effort. With a tremendous amount of effort. And if you think about it, she's paralyzed from the shoulders down. She can't grip her hand. She can't lift her arm except using her shoulder. The idea of lifting a potato chip is huge. And then Buddy looks at her just absolutely crestfallen and says, I thought you were going to walk. Right, which is amazing because as you know, we have seen how she's just not going to walk again. He has been MIA for months because her crash took place in Utah. 
she lives in Eastern California, Eastern Central Eastern California. And so she was in Utah for months before she got transferred to California again. And I, I mean, the 50s, I can't imagine you're going to travel back and forth a lot, but, you know, they were planning to get married. And I think Buddy got the short end of the stick in how this movie portrays him, to be honest. Because oh, can we, wait, no, he was the, the, the typical boyfriend who was just horrified and walked out, right? Right, right. <laughs> and and I, I don't know, I mean, obviously we don't know how accurate this was because the movie was based on the book that she wrote, that Jill Kinmont had wrote. So this was all from her perspective. Right, but... But she also had a teenage boyfriend who died in an avalanche. And I thought that's that the same guy. That's him. That's yeah, him. But he didn't die in an avalanche. He just left. No, but that was after this. That part. was after. Oh, that's the same person. Same okay. guy. Yeah, he died, I, I think, in an avalanche accident along the lines of that horrific. It made me gasp when she fell off the mountain. <laughs> so, no, here's why I think Buddy got the short end of the stick. Because remember, she was telling the press at the time of the accident, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to walk again. Mm -hmm. They were communicating by letter. He, you know, he made a comment in that scene about he had written her every week. She doesn't say anything about what she wrote to him, if she wrote to him at all. And if she did, she wouldn't have physically written those letters. Mm -hmm. So she may not have written to him at all. So he's coming in totally cold, not knowing the extent of the injury. And she's like, look, I can pick up a potato chip. And he's like, this is not what I signed up for. Mm. So I give Buddy a little bit of a pass. But then he gets killed in an avalanche in like 19, in the 1960s. So I was kind of like, oh, wow. Being around Jill Kinmont seems to bring some rather ill luck. Mm. Well, let's go back, though, a little bit. Okay, yes. In the beginning, we kind of jumped to potatoes. And, you know, in the beginning, like we see Jill with like her high school team and it shows kind of her coach, which was played by Dabney Coleman, who's another wonderful actor. So I was glad to see him in this flick, too. And, you know, right from the start, like they're they're grooming her to be this, you know, amazing skier and she's on track to be on the Olympic team and her best friend is also going to get on the team. And then you find out, you know, horrifically that her friend develops polio before, you know, her career aspirations even get going. So she's kind of MIA after that point for a while in the story. And, you know, the focus is on Jill and her commitment after her friend you know, loses her ability to race, how determined she is to make the team and, and fulfill their dream. And, you know, then they, they go to the race in Utah, where basically if she wins the race, she's on the Olympic squad and you see her, you know, horrifically fall off a cliff and fall. I don't know how far she fell, but it just, it, it was a very poignant part of the movie. And I, I thought it was really neat to show the rescue teams and, you know, how they do, how they did at that point, bring a person down that was injured. And, you know, you didn't know really why she fell because I know when her and her coach were kind of assessing the, the, the hill, he was saying, you know, now you got to be careful on this one part because you don't want to go too fast. And they saw another really wonderful skier, you know, perform a perfect, you know, maneuver on that area. And he's like, that's exactly the way you should do it. And then you see Jill ski 
and you see her losing control. So the the question I had was, you know, did she did she not listen? You know, did she say, you know what, I'm just going to ski this my way. I'm a fast skier. I know I can beat this girl. Or was it just bad luck, you know, that she just lost her balance and came off this horrific crash? Who knows? Right. And that's not actually how she crashed. She hit a tree in oh. real life. Oh, really? So she did not go off a cliff in real life. She actually hit a tree. So that moment in the movie where they show her just catapulting in free air was totally... <laughs> 1970s filmmaking <laughs> made up. But on the other hand, what I thought was so fascinating was just what 1950s ski racing looked like. Right. Oh, right. With the wooden skis and no helmets. No helmets. I read yeah, that. No, no protective gear, no nothing. But she, to me, seemed like the Michaela Schifrin of her day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Young, you know, high school star, very ready to go. And there's just, I mean, this, there wasn't, well, you couldn't go pro in that day. But there also didn't seem like there was a lot and lot of international racing like there is today. But I could be wrong about that. Well, they gave the impression that she was going to make the Olympic team without ever having had an, an international race. Right. It was all within the United States. I mean, it was I mean, the furthest she went was Utah. Supposedly. Yeah. That was that was how they presented it. And I can believe it because Alpine racing in the United States in the 1950s was not the way it is today. I mean, we remember when we talked to Maura Grogan about losing in the 70s and she talked about, she just kind of was put on the team, like here I am, because there wasn't a lot of competition and it was very sitting on somebody's lap in the backseat of the car to get to the race, which I loved that at the beginning of the movie and kind of wearing a bar, you know, wearing her team, her high school team sweater Mm because she didn't really have a uniform Mm -hmm. and the wooden skis and just the course itself. There were trees all over the course, right next to the course, and everybody is just standing there. Right, right. And I'm sure there were courses where there was a cliff very close to the edge. And I'm like, how did anybody survive to make it to the Olympics on these courses? (laughs) Well, my problem was that I kept on waiting for her to crash. Like, because they showed all these ski montages and I'm like, okay, where is the crash? Where is the crash? I'm like, I'm dying to know. I'm like, does she make it to the Olympics and then crash? Or does she crash before the Olympics? And, you know, and it was interesting to see what they portrayed as 1950s, you know, hospital care for someone with that severe of a spinal cord injury, putting her in traction, basically immobilizing her and, and actually doing physical therapy too afterwards which was great, but it, it was interesting to see just those kind of skills they had back then. And I, it would be interesting to see what they could have done differently now. I don't know, you know, because I mean, still a C5 spinal injury is still pretty damaging, you know, so I don't know if they could have done anything differently, but it was sad to see. And I don't know if this is true, like the the uh, the traffic that she couldn't get to the hospital, you know, all all those kind of things that they kind of put in. I don't know if it was just for dramatic effect or, or what, but, but the whole point I thought was, you know, she really never lost her hope. She never lost her spirit. You know, she, she always had this kind of happy, fun, comedic kind of personality that they kind of portrayed in the film. And she never really got too down even with all the struggles. And I don't know if that was due to the impact of Dick Buick, because 
he was um, her also her love interest in the film. And he she had uh, supposedly met Dick before she had the romance with Buddy. And then he was kind of this hot shot who was also an Olympian on the U.S. squad in 1952, did not win any medals. And he kind of was portrayed by Bo Bridges as this kind of fly by the seat of your pants, daredevil, skier, kind of death, you know, I don't know if he had a death wish, but he just kind of, he kind of seemed lost if he wasn't doing something crazy and fantastic. He was a daredevil pilot, a motorcyclist, et cetera. And she was drawn to him and you know, when he she was recuperating in the hospital, he comes to visit and pretty much, an, I don't know how true this is, but he really seemed to, you know, lift her spirits up enough to say, you know, I can get out of this. I, I can make something of myself, even though I'm not going to be that Olympic skier anymore. And I loved how they threw in the little bit of hot dog skiing, kind of the birth of of moguls and aerials, where they they show where they introduce Mad Dog Buick coming down the hill, and he flips over, and I was like, oh. And that was in the '70s when that kind of skiing wasn't in the Olympics or seen competitively. It still was a hot dog right environment. And who did those stunts? Was it Bo? Oh, no, that obviously was not Bo. He also probably did not fly the plane. The long montages of the plane doing loop-de-loops and not having enough budget to actually go inside the cockpit. You would not risk Bo Bridges's beautiful face <laughs> on doing those flips. But, okay, I, I do want to talk about a scene that, and I am not exaggerating last night, I rewatched the movie yesterday. Two o'clock this morning, I woke up. I was having nightmares and I could not get back to sleep about the scene in the swimming pool oh, between no. Dick Buick and Jill Kinmont where he, they're in the swimming pool together. And he's sort of like, you can hold yourself, you can hold yourself up. And she sinks down under the float and is drowning. I'm sorry. That's a sign you break up with somebody. <laughs> but yeah, that's creepy. That's pretty creepy. Uh, how... How they put that in the, I mean, it just shows when we were talking about it, uh, when you were saying before how the movie, Fran, was of its time. Like, if you put that same scene in a movie today, that would be the kind of scene that they would show an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. And that was somehow shown, like, he's the only one who's treating her normal. Mm-hmm. And he's sorry. I literally could not go back to sleep last night because I kept imagining the feeling of you cannot move from your shoulders down. You've mm-hmm. sunk under the water and you're just going to die. Yeah. But I think from his point of view, the way they portrayed it, I felt like, you know, just along with what Buddy said, you know, when he was sitting there waiting for her to tell her, tell him or show her him her, her big reveal. You know, I think everybody always, always had that that hope, maybe that, you know, she wasn't going to be so paralyzed and and so restricted her whole life. So I don't know, maybe that's what he thought or what they were trying to portray in that scene. Like maybe they were trying to portray just how fragile she really was, you know, and any little thing that you, you, you think is harmless, you know, is not so harmless, you know, but that was pretty, pretty darn creepy for him to be so cavalier about her. But I mean, they called each other long distance. They pay for long distance telephone calls. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing the little details like that. And, and flying on the planes, I was like, wow, this is so like 
Interesting because how was plane travel back in the 50s? Was it so easy breezy to just fly everywhere for like the ski meets and, you know, et cetera? I'm like, I guess it was more normal at that point in the mid 50s, late, you know, late 50s than I thought. Right. And the plane was Sierra Pacific Airlines, which was apparently a real airline because I watched the credits and they credit. I don't know if it was around in the 50s, but it was certainly probably part of whatever deal they brokered. So, I mean, it it was really I don't know. It was really interesting. And then I I like the fact that, you know, she finally, you know, says, well, what am I going to do with my life? Like, I can't just sit in this chair and feel sorry for myself. And then she realizes that she has this affinity for teaching and kids and, you know, and I don't know how true to life it is that she and Dick visited the uh, Indian reservation in town and realized that they needed teachers or not. Because when I tried to research where a little bit of her biography afterwards, it said she did teach, but it was in Washington state initially, not in California. So I was a little confused. I'm like, oh, well, you know, the, the, the movie portrays her as returning to her hometown, returning to the kids most in need and teaching at a local Indian reservation, whereas her biography seems to indicate otherwise. Right, because she wasn't allowed to get a teaching. Like Nobody would let her take go into education because they said, well, nobody's got to hire a teacher in a wheelchair. And she finally found in the state of Washington, they would let her go to school, get her teaching certificate. So she taught there and then she taught in Beverly Hills and then she taught in a few other places. I'm not sure, but I didn't see also that she taught American Indians, but she did have a Native American education fund. So I didn't, wasn't quite sure what the connection there was then, but I mean, the, those kids were an interesting plot device. <laughs> it, it seemed like they condensed it all for the movie, like right. the idea that right. she had to fight to get the teacher's license, that she ended up having to teach in possibly some disadvantaged, low income mm-hmm. site that would let her teach, you know, whether it was Washington or California. But yeah, it was one of the things that else that bothered me about the movie. It felt like somebody made a list of the points they wanted to make in this movie. Like we're going to have the, like we're talking about friend, the feel good athlete story. We're also going to have the disability uh, movement part of the story. And then we got to stick in this romance because, you know, it's 1975 and love story was the big movie not long ago. So we've got to have a, and the indigenous children did very much feel like a plot device. Like even let's throw in some indigenous rights. Right. Cause right at the beginning, I mean, they use the kids as what can you as do? As the frame. The, yeah. What can you do in a wheelchair? Oh, I have to have a catheter next to me on my leg. <laughs> what is up with this weird narration that you start the movie with and then drop? Uh, that was my so, other big deal. Yeah. There was a lot of voiceover at the beginning, mm-hmm. which was, I felt unnecessary and kind right. of annoying. Like, I think Fran would have been much happier if they had just put at the bottom, you know, California, 1954. Right, right. Instead of this whole setup and show, don't tell. Yes. Yeah, because I couldn't tell initially. I'm like, okay, I know it was made in 1975. Like I said, I didn't read about her, so I didn't know how old she was. So I was like, okay, are we in the 60s? Are we in the 50s? Then I saw the cars and I was like, okay. You know, we're back in the 50s, so you can establish it. But yeah, it's it was very formulaic. 
And I don't know how differently we would have gone after it at this point. Like you said, you know, would they have had that swimming pool scene? Would they have, you know, shown, you know, Dick in his plane, you know, taking off and and landing and doing the loop-de-loops, you know, that wasted, you know, how much time? (laughs) One thing that also made me laugh, because it it did seem very 70s, was right in the beginning. I'm Jill Kinmont, and I ski. (laughs) Who is she talking to? don't know but i was waiting at the end because she said it twice during the movie and then at the end i'm like where's i'm jill kimmont and i teach (laughs) like when she said that i thought it was because in real life two days after her accident uh there was a sports illustrated published with her on the cover as a hopeful right for for the olympic team and i thought oh is this going to be like her sports illustrated like here's the guy taking the pictures and doing the interview and that's why she's doing this ridiculous Susie Chafee commercial remember Susie Chapstick I know I mentioned her before but it felt like that like hi I'm Susie Chapstick and I ski which is why I need Chapstick I just yeah I have to agree there were some really odd just what was the director thinking but I can tell you one thing the director was thinking yes the director and the actress who played Jill Kinmont got married. Interesting. Oh. They were not involved, but he cast her out of this huge casting call and ended up marrying her. Interesting. Sven Galima. <laughs> she also won a Golden Globe. Yes, I saw that. Interesting. She was nominated for Best Actress in a Drama, but she won for Best Actress Debut. But you know what? I liked her. Like, I, she was very engaging. I thought she seemed very real. So I, I thought it was a really good performance by her with what she had to work with. But yeah, I, I liked her a lot. I thought she was very convincing. And the makeup people who did all the sweat for when she was doing her rehab <laughs> stuff and working so hard. did a good job. Too. Listener Marilyn said... She it was she saw it in the theater too, and was a tearjerker. But it was I mean it really was like love story. Yes, and the and the dramatic song at the end. <laughs> Olivia Newton John oh. also nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, that no, song. Do you know those are that's the type of stuff? Okay, we need a song to get nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> it always is at the end. But God did it, Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, did it not sound like the song from Ice Castles? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. This movie so reminded me of Ice Castles. Ice Castles after this or before? Ice Castles is after. Oh, so then Ice Castles might have pilfered from this a little bit. But that leads the question to Robbie Benson or Bro Bridges? Oh, definitely Robbie Benson. <laughs> Hands down. Hands down. But then the problem is, you know, you feel like Jill has had all this strife in her life. You know, she has the, she's a paraplegic. Her first fiance decides to just drop her. And then she has this wonderful new, you know, love in her life and they're going to get married. And then he dies in a plane crash. And you're like, well, what more could this person deal with i mean she's got she has all the strife in her life and she still seems to pick herself up and and move forward but i did read uh somewhere online that you know they were waiting for him to come visit her when he 
supposedly passed. But then I read that he didn't die that way. He was like somewhere else doing some other thing with possibly other, you know, he was working or something and he just, you know, died in a plane crash and he wasn't even flying it. So I don't know why they, I guess they just put it in for dramatic effect. Well, and it was interesting, like, where was he coming from? Because they call, he didn't show up for the birthday dinner, which I, I was very happy to see 1975 birthday dinner with a horribly decorated birthday cake. That looks like <laughs> something I would have done. Where it was just chocolate fudge and it said, happy birthday, Jill. Like, you could barely get it out to be legible. But lots of frosting. Very good. But they're waiting and waiting for him. And then they call long distance. Or no, they get the long distance call. And No, no, no. They called the airport first. Well, oh, yeah. They called the airport because when did he take off? Two days ago. Like, where is he coming from that he's landing the plane so often to refuel? I mean, it was a small plane, but like, where is he coming from? And he would stay for months at a time. Like, it was that I found the whole time issue in this movie very difficult. So we started in 1954, roughly. Mm -hmm. And he was killed in 1957. Okay. So you can kind of frame it that way. But number one, the little brother never aged. <laughs> he never did. So that was problematic. But even it just felt like in one minute she's 16, and in the next minute she's already had two fiancés. Right, right. But she can only be like 18. And I'm like, I realize maybe in the 1950s they got married a little bit younger. Right, right. But, I mean, seriously, what what is happening? <laughs> Well, with the time in this and you got to wonder her parents too because they're probably thinking okay well now we have this paraplegic daughter that we're gonna have to take care of the rest of our lives you know and i'm gonna take care of her when we're dead not the little brother who likes to see your boobies you know <laughs> but wasn't that that I think was one of my, I mean, as awful as it is, one of my favorite moments in the movie was right at the beginning where she's yelling to her mother how she wa doesn't want to go to school and she wants to go ski. And the little brother comes in and says, oh, I see your movie. <laughs> I thought that was probably the most real moment in the whole movie mm -hmm. without any rose colored glasses, mm -hmm. without any veneer of everything's going to be wonderful. True, true. But I did like, you know, the friend circle that she got, you know, because like I said, her her best friend, Audra Joe, developed polio and she comes back later on in the movie at the rehab facility. So she becomes once again her de facto BFF and, you know, showing her the ropes at the rehab facility. And, you know, once again, they're brought together by a completely different circumstance, but still there's that bond there, especially when they go to go back to college. And then I was thinking, you know, the three girls were in this convertible going to school. And I'm like, okay, the girl with no leg ability is driving. So I'm like, okay, maybe she has one of those cars like FDR where she can all, this all hand controls. But then the girl in the back only seemed to have like a neck injury. So she seemed to have the most mobility. So I'm like, well, why isn't she driving? <laughs> or maybe she couldn't drive because of her neck. And then this other, this poor girl who had uh, the neck injury was responsible for getting these two more seriously debilitated girls out of the car. It's just so strange, but I guess they wanted to show how really, truly difficult it was for her once again to do what she wanted to do. And it just definitely showed the 
the stereotypes back in that day that just because you did not have the ability to move your body, they thought your brain was, you know, downhill too. And they thought you were just, were not going to be a productive member of society. So that was actually one of the things I thought they also brought out too, was that just because, you know, she's not who she thought she was, doesn't mean that she can't become a productive member of society. Right. And we're still like decades away from the Americans with Disabilities Act, even when this was filmed. Right. We're still decades away. So remember, as we talked with author David Davis about the wheel the history of wheelchair basketball, just how tough it was for people to get around. And I thought that scene was really interesting because you do wonder like, OK, so how how is this woman with the neck brace going to maneuver two women into wheelchairs, one of whom is you know, paralyzed from the shoulders down and they've got the little sliding ramp thing and they, they try to slide her onto the wheelchair. I would imagine they have practiced this before, but this time she just falls over in a heap and, and everybody else just kind of looks, but what happens next? I kind of wondered like back in her chair. I mean, there's no way those chicks got her back in the chair. I'm assuming somebody helped her. You would hope that was end of scene. (laughs) (laughs) But that scene and the scene in the rehabilitation center where Jill is first arriving struck a very different chord with me now that we've interviewed several Paralympians Mm -hmm. and the whole gallows humor Mm -hmm. and the whole calling each other gimp and cripple. And I apologize for the language, but that is the language they use in the movie. And I remember Jill and I had a conversation, I think when we were doing maybe one of our first Paralympian interviews. We were both so worried about saying the wrong thing and being disrespectful. And we almost, at least for me, I almost psyched myself out of just treating it like a regular interview. (laughs) And then a person comes on and makes this absolutely off-color joke about their own disability. My face falls, Jill's face falls, and then we were fine the rest of the time. Because mm-hmm. we remember that, and it goes back to what you were saying, Fran, about how the brain doesn't work, that somehow, even when you have good intentions when dealing with people with disabilities, you focus so much on the disability that you forget this whole other part of this person's life, that that's just, you know, I'm five feet tall, I can't reach the top shelf. Oh, I've had polio, I can't walk. It's just part of their lives. It's mm-hmm. it's not their lives. Oh, and how apropos was it that the dean, we even had our male white privilege moment. That was awesome. When he started going off about how hard his life was, and I'm just like sitting there like, you have got to be absolutely kidding me. And then Jill gives it to him. And I'm like, thank goodness you did give it to him, Jill, because that was absolutely so I don't even know what he complained about, but it was about absolutely nothing. There was like no hardship whatsoever in this guy's life. And he's sitting there as dean of this university. And he has the nerve to say that he has been like, you know, so put upon, you know, while she's sitting there in front of him, paralyzed from the shoulders down. And I wrote that down in my notes. And I'm like, it's even got white male privilege. <laughs> When you were saying before that it was very formulaic, they really checked so, almost too many boxes. It's right, like, not at all. Pick, pick a line, you know, pick pick a through line here. Can we check it? It was definitely felt like movie of the week. Oh, oh yeah, it really did. I mean, just the quality. Uh, you could tell it was low budget in a yeah. way. I mean, well, all the 
ski events look like the same slope. It was. Like her room was filled with flowers and then like all these scary looking stuffed animals. Yes. <laughs> all the skiing was shot over three days in one place. Well, you could tell. <laughs> it was the same mountain. It was the same. It was the same track. <laughs> I think if you look carefully, the fans were all the, like, you can see the person. But I did love how they did the timing. Yes. That yes, was with the cool. phone. Yeah. So they had to call down. They had a guy on the phone at the top of the mountain. They had a guy at the phone at the bottom of the mountain who was going to time it. And then they just counted down. And that was it. And like, oh, that's really fascinating how you can. And there had to be some kind of delay for the sound, but not enough. Well, hmm. In one of the first races, Audra Joe says something about how the girl only beat her by five seconds. Hmm. And that's true because now we're talking about races being won oh. or lost by five hundredths mm -hmm. of a second. Like five seconds is an mm -hmm. eternity. <laughs> but to her, they were in the same speed category by mm -hmm. only being five seconds apart. And I'm like, five seconds, please. You could, she could have had another fiance in five seconds of modern skiing. <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, they didn't do anything about like the equipment like they did in like Prefontaine where they were doing all the shoe stuff, you know, and all that kind of technology stuff. Like all that stuff was not even important at this point. Like basically all she needed was the skis, the wood skis and the poles, you know, and that's it. And her goggles. And I'm still Kinmont and I ski. <laughs> oh, and then Dabney Coleman had a line because I wrote this down. This is Jill Kinmont and she's not going to die. <laughs> <laughs> that scene in the ambulance, uh, was, it made no, no sense, sense to me. I mean, yes. Okay. There had to be a traffic accident while she's trying to get to the hospital. Really? And the ambulance had a siren. We heard it when it left the mountain. Right. So why are we not woo-wooing? <laughs> to get away from all these cars. But yet they're in the ambulance. And one of the other, one of her teammates says, she's not going to make it five hours. Oh, this is, and then the Dabney Coleman line. And I'm like, <laughs> this scene makes no sense. Why do we think she's going to die? It's like there was, she was injured, but it didn't, feel catastrophic mm. something about the whole injury scene it, on the one hand a punctured like her ribs broke and she punctured a lung and severed an artery and she's going to bleed out right right it, it was very you know when they came i was surprised they even had the basket mm. going back to that discussion that that basket was right there and that there seemed they kind of seemed to know what they were dealing with like move her you know right, don't right. move anything i was actually kind of surprised with how advanced they just these mm. ski racers were in knowing how to manage this situation but yeah i, I just where the guy's like she's gonna die well yeah. i bet you know back at in that day i mean how many folks did have uh, incidents on the slopes i mean just like today i mean you know people either don't have the skill set to do what they want to do or the, even if they do and they just something just happens and these rescue teams have to be there to you know get them you know get them immobilized and get them to care so i'm assuming that the people that do that job are probably well versed even in the 50s but there was all those other people around them and they kept on telling them to get out of the way 
Yeah, why why were we swarming the ambulance? Were the Beatles in the ambulance? What was happening? It was like they were going to run to the hospital with her. <laughs> I was like, why are we sticking our hand in the window? Like she's she's famous, but I mean, what who does that? Maybe because they had run from the race in California to Utah. Since we had all the same fans at all the different races over three, you know, supposedly over a two year period. They've been out on that mountain a long time. Maybe they just wanted to ride home in the ambulance. <laughs> so good because every race was on that mountain. <laughs> she That's right. All right, Fran, final thoughts. You know what? Like I said before, it was a great film in terms of, you know, its its ability to convey hope and resilience and Olympic spirit and just the personal, you know, the the person that can strive to just be her best, regardless of what she's dealt with. Allison, don't go swimming with Bo Bridges. <laughs> <laughs> Two very good pieces of advice. I, I, Fran, I like what you can pull out of this movie because it is, it is a slow movie of a time, of a certain era. And it's a tearjerker. It's very sentimental. They're trying to pull every string and every button and hope you ignore the low budget factor. Um, <laughs> But it it is an interesting story. Like the story of Jill Cumont is very inspirational to see somebody strive and work so hard when the chips are down in the bowl in her lap. <laughs> she knows how to pick one up and move on. We're going to get in so much trouble for this. <laughs> John Register, come back and tell us it's okay to make these jokes. <laughs> I love that scene because I love that hopefulness that she showed with showing him like, hey, look what I can do. Like I couldn't do this before, but then looking at his face and seeing the look of abject horror that is the only thing that she can do, you know? And I thought that was very poignant. And I do remember watching this movie when I was a kid and that was the scene that I remembered because that it does, it sticks out in your mind because it shows you how one person can see something from one side and then another person can take something from a completely opposite side and and have just two different feelings from the same moment would that side be the other side of the mountain it would be in this movie it would be <laughs> i liked it maybe it was the fact that i was recuperating from my second covid vaccine that i enjoyed it so much came to you at the right time did it was a perfect movie as i recouped <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. What are we watching next time? So next time we are watching Foxcatcher, which is the story of Mark Schultz. And it has uh, some great actors in it. Steve Carell, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Channing Tatum. So can't wait to watch. Have not seen it yet. Excellent. Well, thank you so much as always. And we'll see you on the other side of the mountain. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much, Fran. That's right. We're doing our next book club and movie club episodes on the same title, Foxcatcher. We'll read the book for one of our late April episodes, and then we'll watch the movie later in spring. You can get the book at bookshop.org slash shop slash Flame Alive Pod, which will give us a little commission that supports the show and the Shukflistan Ministry of Commerce would be very grateful for that income. So... Remember when you were in high school and you had to read a book, mm -hmm. but there was a movie available, so you watched the movie, and then maybe like the cliff notes? You cannot get away with that in Shukflistan. You have to read the book and watch the movie.
Ministry of Education demands it. (laughs) Well, let's check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome to Shukvastan. One of our Paralympians, Giles Long, has developed the website for the Lexi graphical system, which is now browser-friendly and works like an app on your smartphone. So this Lexi system, if you remember his conversation with us, is a way to graphically show what each classification means for the different Paralympic competitions, and that will uh, be so much easier to understand when you watch them at Tokyo. So we will have... It's like having little uh, emojis for the classification. Yeah, it really is. It's so helpful. Josh Williamson was named one of Team USA's five athletes to watch in Beijing 2022. Which, of course... which I say, how long did it take for Team USA to catch up with us? (laughs) Well, he was the first next Olympic hopeful. So it's kind of cool because now all of those first ones are starting to get to the Olympics where it was more likely that they could make it. I mean, he's just amazing. And works so hard. So it's paying off. And grows beard back so he doesn't look 12 anymore. (laughs) Good, good, good. Bob Slutter, Nick Cunningham was featured in a Team USA article about his move from athlete to coach. And he was one of the coaches on the sidelines at uh, the last part of the bobsled racing season and coached Lolo Jones and Kelly Humphreys to world championship victory. Which was very exciting. It was exciting, but also a little sad because Kelly used Steve Holcomb's runners on her sled. That's not, I'm not okay with that. I mean, I'm okay with that, but I'm not okay with that. I know it's really sad. It it makes me tear up. and So emotional and so amazing how Steve Holcomb's influence on American bobsledding just continues. Mm -hmm. Just so fantastic and amazing. And I hope continues because he was amazing at what he did. Right. Megan DeHamel is teaching a 10-week off-ice Zoom course for skaters and coaches that will focus on strength, agility, explosive power, flexibility, and motivation. And you can get pricing and register at skatephoenix.ca. Snowboarder Alex Diebel placed 23rd in the finals for the 2021 FIS Snowboard Cross World Championships. Which is good for him, considering that he calls himself one of the old people. On the, on the track. He was excited about making the finals. He posted an Insta. He was kind of pleasantly surprised and excited about having made the finals. Oh, good for him. Author Roy Chomizawa was interviewed by Carlos Gill of Brazil's TV Globo, and he was interviewed alongside a le- legendary Olympic gymnast, Suji Tsurumi, and they will be on Brazilian programming that will air this spring. Excellent. Biathlon World Champs are going on right now, and we're, of course, cheering for Claire Egan in the mixed relay. Uh, she got 12th place, and more races are coming over the next week. Luger Shiva Keshevin was testing nat- natural track luge in Austria and Italy with the hopes that it could be done in the Indian Himalayas, which would be cool if they could build a natural luge track there because that'd be a whole lot cheaper than a standard track that's kind of a refrigerated ice tube you could say it's nice that he's exploring ways to make the sport viable in India. So we'll keep an eye on that and hopefully we can get some more news. The dulcet tones of Jason Bryant will be on the call at the Max Sports Wrestling Championships at the end of February and they will be aired on ESPN+. 
And hockey player Brianna Decker is on episode 97 of Hear Her Sports podcast. A, a little promotion for Hear Her Sports. It's a podcast with long-form intimate profiles of female athletes breaking boundaries, speaking up, and living with power and confidence. And it's one of our favorite shows. So we will have a link to that in the show notes. You check it out. That signals that it's time for our history moment all year long. We are looking at Atlanta 1996 because it is the 25th anniversary of those Olympics. Allison, what's the story this week? Okay, so I want to talk about Fatima Roba, Mm -hmm. who was the Ethiopian distance runner who won the women's marathon. Okay. And she was special for many reasons. She was the first African woman to win uh, the women's marathon. Keep in mind, of course, that women's marathon had only been in the Olympics since 1984. Vividly sticking out in my mind is Joan Benoit from the U.S. winning that. Yes, yes. that first one. So at the time, a lot of reporters and people in the public were making the the connection between Roba and Abebe Bekila from 1960, who we read about, of course, in Rome 1960, being the first African to win the men's marathon. Okay. And how that ushered in this golden age of African long distance running for men. Well, Fatima Roba did the same thing for women. So of course in Ethiopian society, probably still, and certainly at the time, a female athlete was an anomaly, not welcomed, not accepted. So the fact that she was so successful gave all these other women athletes the impetus to move forward. And If you look at the results from Ethiopia uh, subsequently, especially when you get to about 2004, 2008, just the number of Ethiopians dominating women's distance running becomes very apparent. I think if if I have my stats right, they have meddled in the 10,000 in the marathon pretty much 2004 forward. Wow. And we're not talking about an extremely wealthy, populous country. We're talking about Ethiopia. I mean, just the number of women who are running can't be that many just because the population is relatively small, but their dominance in distance running can all be traced back to Fatima Roba. Fascinating. I mean, it's interesting because you do wonder, like, you see countries dominate different events and you wonder how that happened and how that evolved. And this is the starting point. Exactly. And she had only switched two years before she had been a 10,000 runner. And she switched, switched to the marathon. marathon. And oh, she no. Switched to the and it only took two years to become an Olympic champion in a that much more distance? Yes. And not only an Olympic champion, she won four out of the five marathons she entered in that time period. Holy cow. Yeah, she didn't fool around. When she burst on the scene, she was like, the Ethiopian women are here and we are going to take over the sport. <laughs> Wow. Eat eat our dust. <laughs> they just, she did not fool around. Interesting. Wow. We've got a little bit of Pyeongchang 2018 news. They have opened a museum about the 2018 Olympics. That we can't go to. No, but not yet. We're putting it on the list for sure. But it's it was opened in time for the third year anniversary of the Games. And it'd be very exciting to see what exhibits are in there. Lots of news from Tokyo 2020 this week. 
So the Tokyo uh, 2020 Organizing Committee has been releasing playbooks on how they will manage uh, the Olympics during the pandemic. And last week, we got the playbooks for the international federations. And since then, we've gotten the press and broadcast and athlete playbooks. And honestly, it's it's a lot of the same that was in the federations, but a little even more stringent, particularly from the press, because they're basically saying, stay away from the athletes. And, you know, you, you keep your distance from each other, keep about one meters for distance from each other, but two meters from the athletes. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. They're really curtailing access to things. So if you have accreditation, but you want space in the the press center, you're going to have to sign up for it on a daily basis, especially if you don't have, I'm, I'm guessing this is also for people who don't have broadcast rights and will set up little studios there. But in venues, they're going to have announcer spacing be farther apart. So there's just going to be overall less room they have said they're going to do virtual press conferences so that you can be elsewhere and not in the same area as the athletes. But that, I mean, in one sense, that's very helpful. In another sense, that makes it harder for people to get access to athletes that they need to. They're going to have to do a lot of pool reporting. Yeah, it sounds like, or or get a, a having, especially if you're a National Olympic Committee that has sent a journalist over and you're from a small country, getting access to your athletes is probably going to be a lot more difficult, and you may not have anybody to pool with either, which is going to be frustrating. When you said the two meters away mm-hmm. from the athletes, so you know how, especially in Pyeongchang, I remember this very clearly, when they march the people in in the opening ceremonies and they have the um, the woman who's holding the country sign. Mm-hmm. And they have some really elaborate costumes. Remember in Pyeongchang, they had those skirts. Oh, yeah, that kind of. That sort of were like ice crystals. I wonder if they'll just assign one to each of the athletes. And it has like a (laughs) two meter circumference. You cannot get any closer. That would prevent the high five and hugging that nobody can do. Deanna Price, I'm sorry. There's a lot of no public transportation. Don't take public transportation. Don't. And this is, I I feel, feel bad for especially people in the press who weren't going to stay in official accommodations because the playbooks recommend, you know, no eating in restaurants, no going out. How are you supposed to do your job if you don't necessarily get access to the press center or maybe even to a venue that day and you got to eat somehow or get around? I I don't know. So there's going to, I, I wonder if there's going to be a lot less of, understanding the feel of the games this time around? Right. I think there'll be a lot fewer of the untold stories, the stories of the smaller countries, the mm-hmm. stories of the the less known athletes until after. Yeah, I wonder. Or unless they're going to try to get athletes to do a lot of that stuff ahead of time. So Possibly. we'll see. Don't know. But it's not like they can meet with the athletes ahead of time either because all the athletes have to do these multiple week isolations and bubbles and quarantines Mm -hmm. and get tested and all of that stuff the athlete playbook does talk about athletes who are not staying in the village so we had wondered before like is every going to everybody going to be staying in the village because there are teams that tend to have athletes that stay elsewhere or in a hotel or something famously 
Team USA Basketball has stayed elsewhere. Gymnasts have stayed elsewhere. So how will that work? And and again, it was don't take public transportation, just, I guess, kind of bubble as much as you can. But that's a lot harder to do when you're not in the village. So we'll see. There's a lot of stay away from each other and, and don't do anything. So I, I don't know what they're... What they're going to do, but the next playbooks come out in April, so hopefully there will be some positive aspects going on that uh, some of these restrictions can change, but I don't know. Or be clarified as to what that, I mean, when they say no public transportation, well, then how are you supposed to get around? Right. They'll have Olympic transportation, but But how reliable? Yeah, can you get on it? How reliable will it be? Will it get you any place on time? Do you remember the stories? I want to say it was from Athens of people who were missing their events because they couldn't get there. Right. And I think Atlanta was a problem, too. We'll probably look at a transportation story this year where because the transportation issues were so bad in Atlanta. Right. But I remember people actually missing events and either, you know, then they were accommodated or not accommodated because of transportation. And it's not like Tokyo is this easy to drive around city. Right. A lot of people, very crowded and they don't have the same. I mean, people are still going about their everyday lives for the most part. So they'll have to work in conjunction with what's going on with the Olympics. NBC has announced that it will cover the opening ceremonies live in the United States. This is a huge deal because they've always, always, always had opening ceremonies on a tape delay so that they could have them on Friday night during primetime television viewing hours. And it didn't matter where in the world the Olympics were. NBC had stuff on Friday night primetime. But now last for Pyeongchang, they had the stream of the opening ceremonies live with no announcing. So you could just watch and and listen to what was going on in the stadium, but just kind of have to guess what you would you were looking at. But this time we'll have actual announcers giving the play-by-play. Is that supposed to be a good thing? Don't know. It depends on the... Well, if it's my boyfriend, Mike Tirico, he'll do a good job. But you never know who's on the side. Yeah, I will never forget that Hoda, the mm-hmm. Today Show announcer... Mm-hmm. She was covering the opening ceremonies. Djibouti was coming in and she said, hey, would you take a look at Djibouti? Oh, oh Hoda. And I said, mute, mute. <laughs> I want to hear the music, but not that badly. Speaking of awkward moments, let's talk about Uncle Yoshi. Oh, Uncle Yoshi. So, we talked about this. Right. Yoshiro Mori, who is the president of the Tokyo organizing Olympic committee has made some gaffes over time, but he's really annoyed people now. The Asahi Shimbun reported, and I, I got this from Reuters.com, who, which reprinted it. At a Japan Olympic Committee Board of Trustees meeting, Mori said, if we increase the number of female board members, we have to make sure their speaking time is restricted somewhat. They have difficulty finishing, which is annoying. I think somebody needs to restrict Uncle Yoshi's speaking time. Which is annoying. (laughs) So there was a news conference later because there was a lot of fallout from Uncle Yoshi's comments. Insulting your population. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And 
we understand this is a, a generational thing, but it's it's also a very much a cultural issue in Japan where women just don't get the same voice that men do. And so Uncle Yoshi said in a news conference, my remarks went against the spirit of the Olympics and Paralympics and were inappropriate. For that, I feel deep remorse, and I would like to retract my remarks. I also want to apologize to the people I offended. And so he was asked, do you think women talk too long? And he said, I don't listen to women lately, so I don't really know. I talk long, too. Oh, Uncle Yoshi. So the IOC now has to kind of backpedal on this. And he they came out and said that President Mori was absolutely inappropriate uh, in his remarks about women. And that was in contradiction to the IOC's commitments and reforms of its Olympic agenda 2020. And then they went on to talk about how well they're doing in gender equality, which, okay. yeah. So since then, this has not stopped. This issue has not stopped. People keep pressing it. So The Guardian reported that over 400 volunteers quit. Olympic organizers received over 5,500 complaints, which can you imagine being the receptionist there? Who was probably a woman. So I really feel bad for her because she was probably like, I know I'm with you. (laughs) Right. NPR reported that some torch relay runners withdrew over Uncle Yoshi's remarks. And so there were a lot of calls on him to resign. And then uh, the Kyoto News reported that the organizing committee was going to hold a special meeting on February 12th to talk about this. And apparently now Maury is going to resign. That is the word on the street that he's going to resign. And uh, one other tidbit from the Tokyo News, which I loved, uh, that Tibak had proposed a meeting for February 17th, which would have Maury the Japanese Olympic minister, uh, Seiko Hashimoto, and then the Tokyo governor, Yuriko Koike, who is a woman. And she said, I'm not going to attend this because it would not, quote, would not deliver anything really positive, end quote. Because Mori wouldn't have listened to her because she's a woman and he doesn't listen to women. Right. So why waste your time in a big meeting and being all diplomatic with all these people who aren't going to listen to you? (laughs) Nice. So... Now the New York Times is reporting that uh, Saburo Kawabuchi, uh, who is a former president for the governing body for Japanese soccer, is the leading candidate to take Mori's place in the organizing committee. Kawabuchi is 84. So we're still talking about the same age difference, but he's probably also a person they... I I would think that if they're looking to replace him, one would think... A woman would be a good idea, but I bet they're also going, well, he's got experience and just we got to get this event done. Right. You can't, I mean, not that there aren't perfectly qualified women. On the other hand, optics, you've got, if you've gotten him to resign, that's your optics win. You've also got to get the job done. You have very limit, I mean, limited time, like you wouldn't believe, unprecedented challenges and unprecedented situation. And you've got to put somebody in there that everybody else is going to listen to. Right. So we know that there is a strong part of Japanese culture where age is very important. So could you put in a 40-year-old of either gender? Good point. Probably not. So putting in somebody of that same generation would possess the same gravitas. And hopefully this new person will know that with gravitas keep your mouth shut let's hope so 
because we cannot oh. have we cannot have more Uncle Yoshi mo- moments. You got just a few months. Just get through it. It, Happy Lunar New Year. Happy Lunar New Year. And continuing on with the one year to go celebrations in Beijing 2022, they have unveiled the torch, which is a very exciting. Inside the game says it's designed to invoke a blazing ribbon and represent fire and ice, which is big on the themes. It's It looks like a spiral, but it also reminds me of the cauldron from 2008. And aren't they calling the the speed skating oval the ribbon, the ice ribbon? I believe so, yes. So we're keeping that theme going as well. Exactly. So the torch is kind of silver and it's this ribbon that's spiraled up and the inside of the ribbon is red for the Olympics and gold for the Paralympics. And the torches, when you... They're allowed to kiss each other. That's what they call it. When you pass the flame from torch to torch, they can kind of interconnect and kiss the flame from one torch to the other. But do they wear masks when they do that? They might have to. I don't know. That might seem, (laughs) that seems rather dangerous in a pandemic to be kissing strange torches randomly on the street. The torch is going to burn with hydrogen using a combustion system developed by the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, which will be a little bit more clean energy. They're going to have to use propane sometimes, depending on what the circumstances, because the hydrogen fuel does not work well in all conditions. So that's kind of a a nod to we're trying to be greener. They're pretty. They're pretty. But a little, I'm getting to like them better as I look at them. Okay. At first I was a little like, meh. But now as I envision the ribbon quality to it, I like it. That's sucking you in? The ribbon thing is sucking me in. Okay. Because it sort of looks like, I mean, I know this is going to be winter, but when you watch the rhythmic gymnastics with the ribbon and they do the spiral thing, which I could watch all day. Okay. Fact, if you ever need to hypnotize Allison, just spin the rhythmic gymnastics ribbon at her eyes (laughs) and she'll be out. So I'm imagining this kind of spinning a bit, and that will look really cool if you're running with it. If you can spin and run at the same time, (laughs) that would look so pretty. All right. Well, we are looking forward to seeing that in action. Not so great news about Beijing 2022 is that there are more and more calls for boycotts. No. (sighs) Yes. No, just no. This still baffles me. Because uh, there's widespread condemnation of uh, the government's treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. And there's crackdowns on protesters in Hong Kongs. And they've got policies toward Tibet and Taiwan that uh, not everybody in the world agrees with. But I still don't understand why ministers of government, this is especially Canada, some Canadian uh, politicians have come out in the last week or so that have said, we we should think about boycotting. And why they want the Olympics to make that statement is still beyond me. It didn't work well, in 1980. You know why they want the Olympics to make that statement? Because it's no skin off their nose. They don't have to make the economic sacrifices that any kind of sanctions would involve. They don't have to have 
manufacturers and consumers in Canada screaming because you can't get Chinese products because we've said, you know, we're not going to send all this business to China. No, let's just punish the athletes who have worked their entire life to bring glory to your country, you know, to have the Canadian or whatever flag raised when they win a medal. That's an easy public statement to make. So how about instead of punishing the athletes who've done nothing and are apolitical for the most part, get off your tushies and actually do something instead of making these ridiculous grand gestures that do nothing to move the needle. Right. We learned from 1980 that that boycott did nothing except for hurt the athletes. Uh, 1984 boycott didn't make a difference because, boy, did the USA clean up from not having uh, Eastern European countries there. So it, that doesn't do anything. And also, the Olympics are one year away. Why aren't you doing something about this problem now? If it's such a big problem, do something about it now. Don't wait for a, a year so that you could use some pawns when you're trying to be grand and righteous. You know, if you want to make some kind of boycott or political statement, how about you pressure the IOC as to not awarding the games to these countries? Right. Why was Russia awarded Sochi? And now we have this huge doping scandal. Why was China awarded Beijing? It's not like, oh, all of a sudden they have human rights violations. Right. It's not a new problem. Yeah. Then that's where you put the pressure on and you work on getting countries to bid because that's part of the reason why Beijing got the Olympics in the first place for 2022, at least, was the only other country that stayed through the bidding process was Kazakhstan. Which isn't any better. Oh, that could be interesting. Ay, ay, ay. Well, I definitely couldn't go to those games. Right? So I'm I'm wondering if uh, T-Box Agenda 2020 is partly created to get... Well, they want more interest in hosting the games, but probably I wonder if they're trying in a way to circumvent having to use these autocratic countries where... The IOC loves them because money is not an option and they get their fancy games, but they also but, have to deal with the fact that these countries are not not very nice to deal with. No, but they did make a nice torch. That they did. I guess. Oh, what is that? Oh, we've got a little Milan Cortina news for you. Speaking of stuff costing too much. The organizers for Milan Cortina think that they might have to move the speed skating venue uh, to Milan. The original rink that they had chosen requires expensive renovation work. Shocking. Right. And uh, Inside the Games reported this and also says the IOC also have cost figures over the Eugenio Monti sliding track in Cortina, which uh, was used in the Cortina Games of 1956, closed... Probably 10 to 15 years ago because they couldn't, it needed to be repaired and they couldn't afford it then. So now they want to use the games as the opportunity to rent, re renovate the sliding track. So you mean the Italians didn't give them an accurate cost estimate? You don't say. Unbelievable. So once again, we have a situation where I bet that I bet these games are going to go way over budget. Even though I think they're trying 
to get them down. And I bet they're having a lot more pressure from the government because there really isn't the money there. They Italy really got slammed with the pandemic oh, early on. Yeah. And they had a lot of issues with that. So you really don't have the money for things. So how are you going to pull this off? But again, IOC did not learn. They could have gone with a nice bid from Stockholm, Aura. And you know, that thing was Ikea flat packed, ready to go. There would have been no surprises. I don't know. Maybe they can learn for, they don't have a bid for a while, but uh, maybe they can learn for 2030. You know, doesn't somebody in Milan have a cousin who knows a guy? <laughs> when you, I, I know a guy who fixes ice rinks. I mean, I grew up in, 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 in an Italian, not only in an Italian-American family myself, but also with that around me. And somebody always has a cousin who knows a guy. <laughs> Most of them are named Joe. <laughs> There's a few named Pat. <laughs> we'll get on that. You know what that sound means? No, I don't. We've got a little LA 2028 news. Oh, I love all this new music. The Inside the Games reported that uh, there's going to be supercomputers employed to help ease LA traffic congestion. Shocking. LA's got a traffic problem. Seriously, I'm really beginning to, beginning to wonder, who's actually reviewing these bids? I mean, are they reading it in a third or fourth language so they're not getting nuances? Because seriously. Are we not surprised? The one thing about the L.A. bid is that they really do have existing venues for most, if not every event. Because they built a new football stadium and that will be used, and that that's kind of like the big thing, but it wasn't really built for the Olympics. It was built for a lot of things, and, oh, the Olympics is going to use it. Okay, fair. And they did, in the bid, put in the whole thing about developing the new public transportation system. Well, see, the Argonne National Laboratory is in on this whole supercomputing thing, so maybe they can do something about it. The Angelinos would be shocked and thrilled <laughs> They probably they could. Would. They probably would. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Let us know what you thought of The Other Side of the Mountain. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will be talking with the decathlete and heptathlete, Jordan Gray. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.
So why are we not woo-wooing 